Just got the one slide. You can just leave it on that one, and that's it. Perfect. Thank you. Well, it is a second week of Lent, and as I said, we're talking about bread today. I love bread. Who loves bread? Bread is fantastic, right? I just love smelling this. It's just, oh, it smells really good. Nice tasting bread here. Um, bread is the old, one of the oldest human-made foods. One of the oldest human-made foods, because it's, it's real simple. It's wheat, it's water, it's salt, boom, that's it. And then you can dump other things on top of it. You can sprinkle things here. You can do this, you can do that to make it better. Um, unlike dust last week, where we hit up most of the passages, we can't hit up everything on bread that's in the Bible this week. Um, there is so much, but we will take a brief look at it. Um, this is not a history of bread class today, but we'll take a look at a few passages about bread in the Scripture and talk about Jesus, who is bread. He calls himself the bread, the living bread, what that means for us and what that looks like um, as we live in this Lenten season. And we're going to look at a passage uh, around bread and Jesus today as well. So big props, I think, is Melissa downstairs? Yes, okay, thanks to Melissa Polk this week. She gave me a crash course education on bread. Um, she's a bread maker, and so all these different grains that are here, we'll talk about in a second. This is a millet, a type of wheat grain that you make bread with. This is a wheat, but closer to, she said, it's closer to what they would have had in the biblical times, emmer, um, which you make bread from. And then barley, which is one of the most common types in the scripture that talks about how they made barley cakes, barley bread, different things of barley uh, in that way. You can come and check these out. I would imagine don't open them and touch them because she's actually going to make bread with them later. Okay, yeah. So you can come look at them, though, if you'd like. This other bread you can touch all you want, but not the other things there. In the Old Testament, bread is all over the place. Bread made from barley, the one over there, is the most common. It's a dense wheat. It creates a dense bread, the texture of cornbread almost today. So like a cornbread type bread that was good to take with you. And a lot of the uh, people are told, uh, prepare yourself a barley cake, take it with you for energy because it is a dense, nutrient-rich type of bread or cake that you could take with you. When wheat wasn't available, they would use beans, they would use lentils, they would use all sorts of other things to make bread in our scripture. And there's generally two types of bread that you hear about, leavened bread, unleavened bread, or bread with yeast and bread without yeast. Bread with yeast gives us this nice, big, uh, beautiful loaf of bread that we kind of see around. And then otherwise, with unleavened bread, without yeast, you get this flat type of bread. And every culture has some sort of flat bread, right? In Armenian, this is called lavash bread. I'm sure in other types of cultures, it's got different names with different things as we eat bread. And with this larger type of bread, you need two things. You need yeast and you need thyme. You need yeast and you need time. You need to put it in there, let it sit, let it rise, boom, you got bread. If you don't have yeast and you don't have time, then you have unleavened bread. That's what you got to make. Those are two things that are important. And uh, in the Old Testament, during the Passover, they eat unleavened bread. Right? They're told to make this unleavened bread. It's, it's when you don't have yeast and you don't have time, you make this flat bread. And it was symbolic of how God was coming over the houses to uh, cleanse right, or to kill off the firstborn of Egypt. And so the people had to get on their way out. And so they stood and they ate this bread and other things, and they were on their way out. And we still, they still practice that today, eating this unleavened bread at the Feast of Unleavened Bread in remembrance of the Passover. So bread was used in the tabernacle as well as a place of worship. They would have stacks, two stacks of six, bread on this gold table, the table of showbread, where they would worship God in that place. So that's all to say. There's your bread introduction and, and, and education for today. 
Bread becomes a symbolic acknowledgement, a symbolic acknowledgement that God was the source of people's life and nourishment. And when it talks about bread, it's a reminder and a calling to us that this bread is symbolic of God's provision for us. As we need bread to live, it is a reminder that God is the one who provides for us. Not just literal physical bread, but he provides in many other ways as well. So hold on to that as we talk today through different passages in the New Testament as well, that God is, the bread is this symbol of provision, of sustenance, of sustaining for God's people during all sorts of seasons. And you move to the New Testament, there's a lot about bread and yeast Jesus himself uh, calls himself the bread of life, the living bread, eat of me, drink of me, and you will live, right? So if, if, if bread is this symbolic acknowledgement that God is the source, and Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm the bread, right? He is the source of life. Jesus is the source of life. He is the one who gives of himself so that we can live in that moment. So he feeds people with bread and fish, the famous story, he breaks the bread, he breaks the fish hands it out so people can eat. He talks about yeast that goes through dough. If you put yeast in dough and you try and separate it, is that possible? No, it's not, right? It works its way through, that's it. I mean, it's gone. You gotta throw the whole batch away and start over. You can't separate yeast from the dough. All these different illustrations that comes up. But the one we're gonna look at today comes from Matthew chapter four, verses one through 11. You can pull that up on your phones if you'd like. So just for the record, Babby was out of town this week. She was on vacation. Yay, Babby, she went to Florida, which means that the Bible app is not up and running because I don't know how to do that. So you're gonna have to like, <laughs> I don't know how to get that going. So that's why I didn't say go to ourcovenant.org slash weekly because there's nothing there. Um, or actually, I think it's last week's. So there you go. But we're looking at Matthew 4, 1 through 11. You can pull it up. We're going to talk about this. This is the famous passage of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where he's tempted by the accuser. He's tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And it's a passage that talks about bread and its significance, but it's also a famous Lenten passage. It's actually usually done on the first Sunday of Lent. Eh, we're doing it on the second Sunday of Lent just because I like to be different, and so we're going to do it on the second Sunday. And this passage links directly to the Israelites wandering for 40 years in the desert in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the Israelites passed through the Red Sea. Uh, they lived in the wilderness for 40 years. They wandered around because of their disobedience, the Scripture tells us. And they relied on manna, this bread that came from heaven, this bread that appeared to provide for them. Well, here's Jesus. He goes through the Jordan River through baptism. He lives in the wilderness for 40 days. And it talks about a reliance on bread. What does that mean that he then becomes this bread? So the main difference that we'll see today is where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Where Israel started worshiping idols, where Israel could not follow through and wandered around and an entire generation died. Here is Jesus, the one who succeeds, who overcomes, and who is worthy of our praise. That's why it's a famous Lenten passage, because in the season of repentance and renewal, we see Jesus who faces the same temptations that we do, and he overcomes. And that's why he's worthy to be praised this morning and every day. So let's look at context for a moment. We're going to look at the verses right before it, Matthew 3, 13 through 17, the famous passage where Jesus gets baptized. John the Baptist is baptizing people. Here comes Jesus. He gets baptized in the Jordan River. And verse 16, 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So we see the special connection between Jesus and the Father at the moment of his baptism. First off, let me say the obvious, right, according to at least to this account, Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't actually done anything yet, and so the Father's love for him is not based on what he has done. And for those of us who are performance-based, who are performance-oriented, let's take a cue from Jesus here. That the Father shows his unconditional love to his Son based on the relationship that he has with him. All right, the Father's love is not dependent on your ability to do things for him. His love comes from his deep well of affection and love for you as his beloved son and daughter. Let us never forget that, church. And so here's Jesus. The Father says, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. And then, according at least to this gospel, the next thing that happens is he's in the wilderness, and he's about to be tempted by Satan. Let's read it. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. I'm reading from the NIV. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Of course he was. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand at the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put to Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus said to me, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. Lord, we pray for us as we unpack your word. Help us, Holy Spirit, teach us this morning. Add to my words what need to be added and take away what doesn't need to be said, that you might be glorified and magnified, Jesus. pray this in your name. Amen. So, verse 1, Jesus is led into this desert by the Spirit to face temptation, and that verse already gives us a really interesting theological complication, right? Because James tells us God does not tempt us, and yet here is Jesus being sent into the desert to face temptation. So, which one is it? Who's right? Who's wrong? Did Matthew get it right and James got it wrong? Or James got it right and Matthew got it wrong? Well, neither, right? I would say let's, let's, let's consider what happens when our Bible seems to counter, uh, contradict each other. Remember, this is a very specific thing that's happening, that Jesus is being sent into the wilderness in a very specific way with specific meaning behind it. That's to say, I don't think any of us are going to be called to go into the desert for 40 days and fast, okay, in order to be tempted by Satan at the end of it. Uh, I don't think that's how this works. I think this is something very specific, that God does not tempt us. And it is also true that in this moment, the Holy Spirit sent Jesus into the desert to face this temptation. We can hold both of these things to be true because this was a specific calling and purpose that Jesus was stepping into. So what's the first temptation? What's the first thing that is waved in front of Jesus to make him, make him doubt and question? What is it? What's that? Food, we think it's food, right? That's the common answer. We think food, bread, but it's actually something right before that. Remember the context. What's the context? He just got baptized, 
And this voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. And what's the first thing that Satan says to him? If you're my son, if this is the son of God, if you're the son of God, he starts questioning his identity right off the bat. If you're the son of God, like everyone thinks you are, then go do this. All right, the first poke that Satan gives to Jesus is if you're the son of God. Two out of the three temptations, he starts that way. If you're the son of God. You know, everyone just heard it. There was this voice and we assume you were just baptized and everything should be great. But if you're the son of God, right, the accuser challenges his identity as a beloved, as the beloved son of God. And again, this is a unique temptation for Jesus, but also it tells us that Jesus faced every temptation that we faced and overcame. And so for us, we face these temptations as well. Here's a great example. You know, if you've been to a, to a quote-unquote mountaintop worship experience, maybe you went to a retreat or a youth conference or you went to a women's retreat, men's retreat, whatever it was, and you, you felt great. Anyone been there? And you're like, so you feel so close to God. You're worshiping God. It feels amazing. And then what happens? You got to come home and there's still laundry to do and there's dishes in the sink and there's three things that absolutely collapsed at work because you weren't there for the weekend and everyone's looking at you and you got to figure this out and do something. Anyone been there? And you come from that mountain so quickly, you start doubting everything that you heard. Oh, did I really encounter God this weekend? Was it really that good? Right? And so here comes the accuser attacking his identity. If you are the son of God, if you're the son of God, then surely you could take stones and turn it into bread and you wouldn't be hungry anymore. So go ahead and do it, Jesus. Now, several commentators note that this first temptation around bread, it kind of sets the standard for everything else that's coming up in here, that there's this reliance on what sustains us. What are we leaning on? What are we counting on to sustain us in our moments of temptation and need? The interesting thing is with each of these temptations, Satan is not offering something to Jesus that he doesn't already have. He already has everything he could possibly need. He's already got all the power he needs. He's got all, all, all the angels attending to him at any moment. He's just offering him a shortcut to it. He's offering him a way around to get what he wants without God in the picture out the way. So the first temptation is for hunger, for our daily needs. And Jesus responds, Deuteronomy 8.3, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Jesus, do you trust your Father to meet your daily needs? He says, yes, I do. Because whether I eat today or I don't eat today, the provision from God is what sustains me. And I will continue to trust in him and rely on him. Second temptation, Satan tries another tactic. He takes him to the highest point of the temple. He says, all right, if you're the Son of God, there it is again, throw yourself off. Surely, the Son of God, God would not let anything happen to his Son. Throw yourself off. And look how clever the accuser is. Jesus started, you know, with Scripture, and so Satan says, well, let me try some Scripture myself. Let me try to convince him with some Scripture. Psalm 91, 11, and 12. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all ways. Surely that's what it says, Jesus. Go ahead. So let this actually be a reminder to us, church, that not every pastor, preacher, politician, or person who speaks the Word of God is doing so in a way that's worthy of listening to. That we need discernment, as individuals, and as a community. And when someone throws the word of God out there, it may not be something that we need to be listening to, or even that they know what they're saying. So Jesus replies, Deuteronomy 6.16, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the rest of that verse is, 
as they did at Massah. And that's a reference in Exodus when the people of God argued with Moses that God was not providing for them by giving them water. And so Moses hits a rock. You know that passage, the water comes out the rock and they provide. The second temptation points toward a hunger for daily protection. Jesus, do you trust your Father to protect you no matter what? And Jesus says, well, you're asking the wrong question. My Father's already met my needs and protects me in this moment, in every moment. Last temptation, Satan gives up on the whole if you're the Son of God thing. He says, don't worry about that. We're not going to do that anymore, right? And he just gets to the heart of it. He takes him to the tallest mountain and says, all this I will give you if you just bow down to me. All this I will give you if you just bow down to me. Now, I think I've shared this before. When I was a kid and I, I was sick, I got to stay home. And what show did you get to watch when you stayed home during the day? Price is right. That's right, people. Price is right. Yeah. My mom would make soup and we'd have Sprite. It's like the only time I drank Sprite. So it's like, you know, it reminds me of that. And we'd get to watch Price is Right. Great show together. We, me and my mom would watch it together. An iconic show of the game shows. And what makes it iconic? Well, a lot of the games are iconic, but it's got these cool catchphrases. Like if I say, uh, come on down, you know what to say next, right? You're the next contestant on the Price is Right. Hey, we get excited and they, they come on down. I wanted to play Plinko. That was my game. Like, I wanted to do that one. Anybody else? Yeah. What are some other ones you all liked? Any, any other ones you wanted to play? The punch game? Yeah, where you pull out the slip. And yeah, Bob Barker was always good about like hiding the, you know, ah, yeah, anyway. That's a good one. All right, what else? What else? The golf one. The golf one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The hole in one. Yeah. And there's always hole in two because nobody would get it, right? So they're like, hole in two. Yeah. Um, yeah, great games, right? Iconic things that we'd watch together and, and be engaged with together. And all these catchphrases, you know, you get the big wheel, which is another iconic thing. You spin the wheel. And then you get to the showcase showdown at the very end. You know, whoever was the two highest people on the wheel, you get to the showcase showdown, and they see all these amazing things uh, that are offered to them. So there is a, a vacation to the South Pacific. There's a car. There's, you know, whatever, appliances. And as a kid, it's like, oh, I want that vacation to the South Pacific. Now as an adult, it's like, I could use a dishwasher, you know? <laughs> that sounds so nice. I could use one of those. I want a new fridge. I'll take that. Um, and then one of the iconic phrases at the end, what does, the, what does the announcer say? All this can be yours if the price is right. Yeah. Well, Satan grabs Jesus and gives him his own showcase showdown, right? He takes him to the highest place, says, all this can be yours if you just bow down to me. That's all you got to do. You want Persia, Babylon, Nubia, Egypt, you name it. You can see it, Jesus. All this can be yours. All this I will give you if you just bow down to me. The third temptation points to a hunger for power. Power. Jesus, if you just had all the power, certainly you could get out of this mess, and I am the way to that power. So bow down to me. To which Jesus says, Deuteronomy 6.13, Fear the Lord your God and serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. I will not bow down to you, Satan. I trust in my God. And later on, when Jesus, in John's gospel, when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, he knows, it says in there, he knew that all this belonged to him anyway. Right? Satan was just offering the shortcut to something that already belonged to him. So let me also say, just as a side note, if Jesus can go in the desert and be tempted for 40 days or whatever, hunger, fast for 40 days and then be tempted and respond with only quotes from Deuteronomy, 
Certainly we can read Deuteronomy during the year, right? Certainly we can be Old Testament people who read the Old Testament. Amen? Yeah, I know, right. I'm an Old Testament guy. I love the Old Testament. So Jesus uses Deuteronomy three times to speak back to Satan. Certainly we can read the scriptures in that way. All right. Now, like I said, it's a unique moment. I don't believe God is going to call any of us into the desert for 40 days to fast and face this temptation from Satan. This is unique to Jesus. But like I said, it's a reminder to us that Jesus faced temptation, all the temptations that we face. That's what Hebrews says, that he faced these things and he overcame, that he is worthy of our praise and worthy to be followed because he is the true and righteous one who overcame when the accuser came calling. So in the things that we hunger for, let us turn to Jesus and to the Father and to the Holy Spirit to meet our needs. If Jesus faced these same temptations as us, then let's consider these temptations in this passage and what God is calling us to. First off, the very first thing, remember you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. You are grafted into the family. God is our Father. Christ is our brother and our Savior. And no sin, no chasm, no doubts can separate you from your identity as a child of God, that you are wrapped in God's love for you. Second, how many times have we been offered the shortcut that we'd rather do that than patiently wait on God's timing and faithfully endure what might be before us. Patient, faithful endurance through trials is something that maybe we have forgotten about. We like the shortcuts. We like to pray big prayers, and we should, that God would answer this and deliver us from this and do all this and keep praying those prayers because God can do that. But also there's a call in this moment to remember patient faithful endurance through trials, to wait through them and trust in God in those moments. Bread is this reminder of God's provision. And this whole thing started with bread, that he meets our needs every single day in every single way. Sometimes that's giving us the strength to patiently and faithfully endure when we need it. The first temptation, we hunger for that daily bread. And when we hunger, rather than taking from others, we trust and generously give of what I have out of God's abundance for me, whatever that looks like in your life. The second second temptation, when we hunger for a sign from God, let us consider God's faithfulness in bringing you to where you are now, how he's answered your prayers along the way in this journey of life. And lastly, the third temptation, the one I think we really need to listen to in this generation, the hunger for power where Satan takes Jesus to a high place and says, hey, all this will be yours if the price is right and the price is bowing down to me. Church, as Christians, we've been too willingly led to high places by politicians, businessmen, moneymakers, and been told all this will be yours if you just give me your vote, if you just follow my agenda, all this will be yours. Let's not be so simple-minded to succumb to the sin that so easily entangles us. May we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who faced these very same temptations that we face, and he overcame. And he is worthy to be followed. He is worthy to be trusted. He is worthy to be praised. This bread that we value, this bread that we hold on to, Jesus takes it when he's sitting with his disciples at that Passover meal, and he breaks it, and he institutes communion. And the church later on, as they started doing this, they would use different things, not just bread. They would use other items and not just wine or juice. They would drink other things. But ultimately, it was a symbol of what God had done, a sacrament of what God was doing. 
And we come to the communion table this morning on the first Sunday of the month with bread in mind. That Jesus says, I am the bread, the living bread. As we eat from him and drink from his cup, that we might have life. That we identify as his children in his kingdom. The Apostle Paul tells us before we take communion, that we allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts for any unconfessed sin. That we might confess and receive communion freely this morning. So the next few moments of silence, take a few moments, allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart and confess any unconfessed sin.